Our scripture this morning is Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you, whether you're joining us online or here in person. Welcome. Today, we have in front of us a very interesting topic. We have the topic of evil and spiritual darkness. Uh, this is a topic that the Bible doesn't bat an eye at and wants us to take very seriously. While it is a topic, uh, this, this topic of, of evil and spiritual darkness, that our modern-day Western society very much so bats an eye at. And actually, in doing so, makes us very ill-equipped, if equipped at all, to face some of these very harsh realities that we, we actually have to deal with. And we'll talk about some of that. But then for the Christians, we need to take this topic seriously. Uh, and, and I think a great way to frame this is to consider what C.S. Lewis, Christian author, kind of how he kind of frames this idea. Because what, uh, what, what C.S. Lewis says is Christians have a tendency to fall in one of two camps, one of two extremes. On the one hand, Christians can fall into the, this idea when it comes to evil and spiritual darkness where they, they kind of overdo it. They have this over, overly excessive thought process about it. And it's kind of like this idea is there's a devil behind every tree. You know, you, you, you run out of gas on the way to work and you, you say, the devil's coming after me or, or that, that sort of thing. Like it's, it's very, well, overly stressed and that sort of thing. But then on the flip side, C.S. Lewis says we can also fall into this pattern where we just discount it entirely. Or just are in utter disbelief that the spiritual darkness and evil is, is, is at work around us. And C.S. Lewis says that's, that's equally a scary situation to find ourselves in. And I think of, of most Christians probably here today, of those two camps, you probably will likely fall into the latter, right? Where you, if anything, you tend to discount it and think it's just not a reality. But the Bible would caution us against that and wants us to give serious thought and weight to this topic that is very much uh, present. 
What we've been seeing through the book of Luke is Luke, this this gospel writer, showing from time to time as Jesus has been out doing ministry, Jesus kind of dealing with it. So like a a person possessed with with a demon would come to Jesus, and Luke very briefly says, and Jesus cast it out, and and Jesus addressed it. But here in this text, in the middle of Luke chapter 8, it's as if Jesus, through Luke, is wanting to stop everything down in slow motion and say, hey, I want you to consider this and consider this very thoughtfully. So our three headers today, our three headings today are the reality of evil, uh, Jesus' power over it, and then uh, we want to draw some conclusions of what it means for us, like kind of our response. So the reality of evil, Jesus' power over it, and some responses for how we ought to live in, in light of this reality. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into the text. Father, yes, this is a very uh, interesting topic. It's probably a topic that in our society today we don't give much thought to, uh, but we need to clearly uh, based on this, this story, this text. And so, Father, would you please give us each your spirit to take away what it is uh, you have in front of us. Father, for those who are especially kind of in the throes of, of hardship or suffering or just trying circumstances, I pray that you would help them especially just see your power in the midst of it. Help us as a church be a light in the midst of, of, of spiritual darkness. Uh, we need your help at this time, and we pray that you would lead, lead it all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so first of all, we're going to look at the reality of evil. Uh, the key to, to opening up this very interesting text, it's a very interesting story, the key, it seemed to me, as I was studying this, to, to, to begin to understand what's going on here, is to actually look at this story through the lens of the disciples, Now, it's kind of interesting in a sense because disciples aren't really mentioned here in this text. But if you think about it from the perspective of the the disciples, you start to see kind of what's going on. And what do I mean by that? Well, at this point in Luke chapter 8, we see that Jesus has been investing more thoughtfully and more intentionally in his followers, in these key students of his. He's really starting to pour into them and and teach them some lessons that he wants to... He wants them to take with them as as they move forward. So back in early uh, Luke chapter 8, we see that he taught the crowd and the disciples the very famous parable or story of the farmer, the sower who went out and sowed seed, that is the word of God, onto different types of soil, that is different heart postures of who who would receive, not receive him. And really kind of the thrust of that story there was that we want to be the good soil. We want to be the soil where the seed is, is nourished, God's word is nourished, and we grow up in Christ to become more like him, to become more like, like God in, in our lives, and, and, it, and, it, and it multiplies out uh, manyfold. Uh, but one of the key thoughts in that story is that that all needs to happen, that growth needs to happen through adversity. It's one of the points that Jesus really stressed, that growth, that multiplication needs to happen. It's going to happen through adversity. Well, right after that teaching, essentially, the disciples got object lesson number one. They were out there on the lake. Jesus had suggested kind of offhandedly, hey, let's go to the other side. So these fishermen disciples prepared a boat, set out into the lake, and there in the middle, they found themselves caught in the middle of a squall, Luke tells us. And they were very incredulous when Jesus was found sleeping during that whole thing. They woke him up and they said, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Want to do something here? And Jesus got up, uh, rebuked the winds, rebuked the waves, and then rebuked them and said, where is your faith? Here's this adversity that you're facing. Where is your faith, disciples, was the lesson he had for them. And they were left scratching their heads like, who is this? He can command even the wind and the waves, and they respond to him. 
Well, now we reach today's story, picking up right where we left off to find object lesson number two. A whole different kind of adversity. On the lake, it was the storm. Here, it's kind of the demonic or, the, or, the, the, or spiritual darkness. The disciples are still scratching their heads, still trying to understand who is this, what is he teaching in the midst of all of this, and they arrive to the region of the Gerasenes, also known as the Decapolis, back then in those times, the, the place of 10 cities. And what must have been going through the disciples' heads as they, uh, as they pulled up onto the shore was what on earth are we doing here? Uh, for, for starters, what we know from this time in this context is this was enemy territory. They'd have been like, Jesus, why are you bringing us here of all places? This is enemy territory. For one thing, it was where the Gentiles lived. It's kind of a broad stroke term to describe all non-Jews. You'll have noticed during the reading that there was a herd of pigs there. You know Jews don't eat pigs, non-kosher food. So there's Gentiles there. And those are people just to be avoided because they were unclean, it was thought, and all, all the rest of that. But more than that, this was a place we know from history where a Roman garrison, a Roman army unit was stationed. And if you know anything about the Jews and really all people groups as as they saw the Romans, they saw them as the oppressors. In fact, scholars tell us that that's likely what these pigs were doing there. They were feeding the VIPs. They were feeding the the military there so they could do their thing. There's the Roman oppressors, enemy territory, and there's the fact that this is just straight up a random remote place. These disciples were undoubtedly wondering, why are we here, Jesus? You told us to set set out into the lake and we, we kind of... Uh, launched. We came, we came here on shore. Why do you have us here? And what we see through this teaching is, while well, on the lake, he was showing him that he is Lord over creation. Here, he is Lord over evil and spiritual darkness. Because check out how our text starts, right? They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. And then it says this, when Jesus stepped ashore, Okay, so right when he's getting off the boat, when he stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man. All right, the reality of evil, let's let's consider that. Because what we're seeing here, Jesus wants us to to wrestle with, undoubtedly, is that there's a very real spiritual evil that exists outside of us. This story has to be stressing that. We're given, for instance, all this detail about this man's condition. I mean, did you notice how Luke spent all this time describing what this guy was facing? If you look at verses 27 and 29, uh, through 29, we were told that he was naked, he was bound with chains, uh, but he had broken himself out. He was crying out. Uh, He had lived among the tombs. And then there's this little, what might seem like a throwaway verse in in verse uh, 29, if you have your Bibles, you can look at this. This is incredible. It says that Jesus had said, come out to this demon. And the demon at first did not come out. Uh, uh-oh, does that mean Jesus is in trouble? He's like, you know, he can't, can't handle the situation. Uh, we'll go on to see that that's not the case at all. But it is worth noting that out on the lake, when Jesus was dealing with the great storm, the raging sea, there was no struggle. But here, here with the demonic, there's a bit of a struggle. It's worth, worth keep bearing in mind. And then in verse 30, we get this detail that Jesus stops everything and kind of gets into the conversation with the demon, asking him, what's, what's your name? And the demon responds, legion. In Mark's account, he says, for we are many. Uh, Roman legion at that time was something like five to 6,000 soldiers, just a well-organized, unified fighting unit that could just do incredible damage. Why is all this detail coming to the surface? What is going, what's Luke doing? What's Jesus showing us through Luke? It has to be emphasizing the fact that spiritual darkness not only exists, 
it exists and it's fierce. Now, there's some modern objections to this, okay? And we probably should talk about some of those. The first one might be, uh, it is said, well, in the ancient times, the writers such as Luke, they didn't have the categories of illnesses that we have today, okay? They didn't have the categories of mental illness, so they just attributed everything to kind of the demonic. The problem with that is the scriptures do have uh, statements such as Matthew 4, where it says, news about Jesus spread over Syria, and people brought him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Now, those having seizures is a Greek word that also is translated insanity. It's really a catch-all phrase to talk about mental illness, actually, which is to say they did have the same categories we have today. And you can see in this verse as, distinction, as distinctive from demon possession. Well, the main objection goes, I just don't believe it. Like I, I, can't, I mean, this, this idea of the demonic, of, of evil, of spiritual darkness, it's more than just a little problematic. But that leaves us with a problem. Uh, there's a professor out of Columbia, a guy named Andrew Del Banco, who is a self-described uh, secular liberal who wrote a book that's really interesting called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense uh, of Evil. And in that, he argues essentially that it's, it's bad for us as people, it's bad for us as a society that we've lost this idea of Satan, uh, that we've lost the sense of, of God and Satan, good and evil. He says, because what happens is it leaves us in this place where we have no way of explaining some of these harsh realities. If all we can say is problems are psychological, or physiological, we're in trouble. And of course, being a non-religious guy, he was asked at one point, why would you, of all people, write a book like this? And he said without dropping a beat, because of the Holocaust. He had had grandparents and great-grandparents who, who had been killed in the Holocaust as an Eastern European Jew. And he said, look, if all we can do is say that was a psychological problem, that the Nazis were a physiological, genetic kind of imbalances or chemical imbalances in their brain, then we have nothing in our repertoire to call it as actually for what it was, and that was wrong and, frankly, evil. Here's what he's quoted as saying in, in, in the book. He says, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. The Bible teaches that evil exists. The Bible teaches that, that evil exists, for instance, corporately. That, that evil exists in, in systems of power, structures of, 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 of politics and, and polity and all that sort of thing. And boy, I can... We, we can all probably wrestle with the fact that over the last few years, our culture has been dealing with this, wrestling with this a little bit more front and center. We just uh, commemorated Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the, the wonderful holiday there. And one of the things that Martin Luther King Jr. was very famous for saying was he said, you know, some of the, these evils that exist in our society, of course, he was dealing with segregation and the evil, evils of, of racism and, and, and all the rest of it. He said, he said, the biggest opponent to all of this isn't so much the Ku Klux Klan leader. He said, the biggest opponent of this is the silent majority, the people who are just sitting there and not doing anything about it or saying anything about it. He's like, that's the evil, which just goes to highlight. There can be, quote unquote, good people making a bad system go, making an evil, propagating an evil system. It's something we've got to think about. The Bible does, gives us so much nuance to understand the harsh realities of these things, that there's evil out there. It's not just within the person, but it's also in our systems. We've got to give great thought that Christians need to wrestle with that, be agents of redemption in that. 
So even evil exists corporately, but evil also exists personally. And the thing that's important to understand here is it's not just, you know, the monsters in the movies. It's, it's in each and one of us. Like, we, just, we each have to wrestle with fighting evil our, ourselves. We, and, and think about it this way. I mean, the scriptures don't, don't bat an eye at this. Look, Apostle Paul says this any number of ways when he said, for instance, be careful not to fall into the devil's trap. Uh, in Ephesians, he said, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. And then Jesus himself said many times in different ways, out of the heart comes evil. And that's really important because, uh, to, to understand, at least in the sense of, in all those occasions, Paul and Jesus, he spe- they were speaking to Christians, meaning not just those people over there, but each one of us have to wrestle with this. And I think what Jesus is doing here on the shore of, of the lake of the, uh, of the region of the Gerasenes is he's doing for the disciples something, and he's doing something for us in which he is pulling the veil back just a little bit. Obviously, this guy who was possessed by these demons is an extreme case, but in showing this man in his condition, what Jesus is doing for each of us is showing us, in a sense, what we're all kind of dealing with, or what the effects of evil, I should say, can have on us, and that is they can enslave us, they can put their chains around us. And the Bible teaches that we make everyday choices between good and evil. Uh, For starters, we can give in to it. Of course, the low-hanging fruit of a thought there is when it comes to, like, temptation. When we get, give into acting out of the temptation of, of anger or the temptation to, to act out of lust or the temptation to act out of uh, uh, impatience or whatever, selfishness. It, do, it doesn't matter. The refusal to forgive. I mean, we're every day making choices between good and evil, the ways of God and, and the not ways of God. And think about just the, the refusal to forgive. I mentioned this uh, a number of weeks back, but I, and I forget who, who quotes this, uh, undoubtedly someone like C.S. Lewis. But he says, uh, the, the failure to forgive is like drinking poison and waiting and watching for the other person to die. I mean, just choosing not to forgive somebody can propagate evil, but it can also, to the point we're making right now, like this man out there on that, that shore, can put its chains around us. It can enslave us. It can hurt us. It can hurt those around us. So we can give into evil, but what this text also shows us is we can overlook, pass over good. And we see this, of course, in the response of the villagers. Jesus healed this man. It's an incredible story. He allows the demons to go off into some nearby pigs. I don't get the whole deal with the pigs. I've read a lot about pigs. Uh, so there's a lot of conjecture, a lot of speculation. If you know something about these pigs, I'd love to hear from you. But there's a lot of, I mean, I do know something about these, and we'll talk about it in a second. But uh, just to say, there's a lot there we don't fully understand. But that's what happens. The man is healed. The demons are, go off, and the, and the pigs drown. And then it picks up here in verse 34. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man whom, from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people who, uh, how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. Isn't that interesting that these villagers came front and center with the power of God? They, if anything, knew this man's condition better than anyone, and yet they saw him in his right mind, that Jesus had clearly healed him, and their response is, Jesus, you need to get out of here. What's going on there? What does that teach us about like how our response can be? 
Well, this is where I think the pigs come into play. I mean, remember, back then, it was the agrar- they lived in an agrarian society, so these pigs were their livelihood. It was their comfort, it was their security, it was their prosperity. Like, that, that was their, their whole livelihood was caught up in these, in these pigs. And so when all these pigs were drowned and they saw them going down, it was like, you know, dollar signs going up and they are vanishing along with it. But what I think what Luke is doing for us as he t- recounts the story and kind of draws the conclusions is he's showing us a clear juxtaposition between these people understanding clearly that Jesus had just done something amazing. And amazingly good, by the way. Healing this man. Setting him free. On the flip side of that, but wanting nothing to do with him. In fact, saying, get out of here. Uh, what is going on there? They were saying, Jesus, if you have come to change our lives, we don't want to have anything to do with that. If if what you're about is going to change things, change our lives, our lives that are secure, where we're finding our security, all that sort of stuff, we just want you to be gone already so we can get back to our lives. And you know, Luke is showing that that's tragic, but I think if we think about it, it's actually very natural to have that kind of response. In fact, it goes so far to say, it almost seems to me that the typical response of the Silicon Valley person is the villager when it comes to Jesus. Jesus, if, if you offer that, I don't, I don't need that. I don't want to change for that. And, and incidentally, I don't have anything wrong with me. Being chained, I'm not chained. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I have no hurt. Why would I need Jesus? I don't. Becky Pippert, who wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, uh, put it like this. She said, we might think otherwise, but no one is in control of themselves. Everybody is enchained to something. Everybody has something that they seek that has a chaining effect. And really, it's unavoidable. Here, here's what she said. She said, the person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. And what Pippert is saying, what the Bible teaches is if we choose anything, anything over the unconditional love of God, whether we're looking for it in relationships and career or whatever the case may be, if we look for anything apart from the unconditional love of God, then it has an enchaining power to it. And this is why Jesus came, to offer life, to offer freedom, to break the chains. So that's the reality of evil. Let's look at the second header, and this we're going to move through much more quickly. Uh, Jesus' power over it, okay? Uh, I mentioned back in verse 29, again, this won't be on your screen, but you can look in your Bible if you have one, that Jesus had said to these demons, come out, and they didn't right away, okay? And while it might seem on the surface that Jesus had met his match, that he was a little bit in trouble, that's really not the case at all. Really, this whole situation was no contest because he kind of goes about it the same way he did out on the sea with the raging storm. Uh, Jesus was woken up. Uh, everybody was saying, you're drowning, and Jesus essentially got up to uh, look at the, the raging sea, and he's like, quiet already. I mean, in other accounts, he's just like, stop, stop talking, quiet down. And in this text, it's, it's actually the same kind of manner. It's like Jesus is dealing with this demon, and everybody's kind of terrified at the implications, but Jesus' heart rate is not going up. I mean, he's just dealing with it all nonchalant. All right, what's your name? You know, it's like, and it's the demons, all five, 6,000, whatever number, that fall in a posture of fear and reverence before him. And what we see here, when he deals with this, is that Jesus is not just Lord over creation, as we've said. He's Lord of good over evil. I mean, that's what he's making the case to be. 
And if there was ever a lost cause of a situation of a person, it would have been this man. And this verse 35 is just, is just a wonderfully powerful verse. It says, the man who, from whom the demons had gone out was sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. Could you imagine that happening? It's no wonder that it says the villagers were terrified. I don't know about you, but if you were here last week and we considered Jesus' power over creation and how the disciples, it said, were amazed and terrified at the same time, and now we're seeing the same thing, people are amazed essentially and terrified. I don't know about you, but I almost feel like of the two, the second, the one we're looking at today is more terrifying. Like, what, who is this person? He not only can, can, can command the wind and waves and listen to him, but he can command the spiritual forces and they listen to him. What we see here is there's a reality of evil, but Jesus has power over it. What are some conclusions we can draw? What does this mean for us? If he has this power to set us free, he has the power to set you free of whatever it is you're facing, whatever hurt, whatever uh, manner that might be stealing your joy. He has the power to heal you, to liberate you from it. But thought number one, you have to accept him. You have to surrender to him. Uh, where do we see that in the text? We see it in two ways both in a positive example and a negative example. First, the positive example. We see it in the healed man. Because after this, heal, this man was healed, what did he want to do? He wanted to go and be with Jesus. He wanted, to, he wanted to go and like, he was probably experiencing a spiritual high. Jesus, you're going over there. Can I join you? That'll be awesome. Did you notice what Jesus did to him? He, he, came, he came back and he said, no, 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 no. Go home. And go and tell how much God has done for you. So we're told in verse 39, the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. It's an interesting little thought there. Jesus said, go tell how much God has done for you. And the guy understood that to mean, okay, I'm going to tell how much Jesus has done for me. He had accepted him as, as Lord. He accepted him as, as God. But he also surrendered to him. Because this man essentially went from, hey, I want to go with you, Jesus. I think it's going to be awesome to go with you. That's the place to be to God, if it's your will not to do that, but to pursue you and follow you over here, I'm good with that. That's what I want to do. I want to do what you want me to do. He surrendered to him. That's the positive example. The negative example were the villagers, of course. The villagers, we just see, didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. They didn't want to match any priorities or follow Jesus' will or thoughts at all in any of this. And of course, the difference between the two was the, the difference of the heart posture. One received and surrendered to Jesus. The other one said, you know what? I'm okay I want to be Lord of my life, essentially. I'm not in chain. I, I got it all together. And I would just say, Christian friends especially, we got to be really careful of this because sometimes we can follow him, we receive him, but are we really surrendering to him? Over the years, as not only just a pastor, but also as you know, Christian brother or friend or whatever the case might be, I've had a number of times where people will come to me and just work out different things that they're working out, and it'll be the tune of, oh, man, like, I'm just trying, like, life is so hard right now. I don't feel like God's with me. I just want God to show me what he wants me to do, and, and we'll be thinking about it. And, hey, as all this is happening, I'm putting myself in the same shoe. I struggle with the same things. But as they're sharing, there'll be, there'll be a little thing in the background or two or three where it's like, and they know they're doing things apart from what God wants them to do. There'll be an area of their life where they're just like, you know what, this is something I'm just, I know God's God and I know his ways are his ways, but in this area of my life, I'm just going to do things the way I want to do them. And I'm not trying to say that they are therefore then experiencing all that they're experiencing because of that situation. But if there's something that you need to consider about God's will and following him, that's if it's straightforward and part of God's word, it starts with surrendering to him and his ways. It's thinking about this and turning from whatever this might be and looking to him. 
need to accept him. We also need to surrender to him. We can experience his liberation, his freedom, the joy that comes along with that, his life. But the second lesson we see in this text is that, and this is a quote, true Christianity is a fight. True Christianity is a fight. This demon replied, my name is Legion. That was the strongest military unit the, 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 the history of the world had seen up until that point. My, my name is Legion, and, and Jesus came to, to deal with that, but he also just to help us recognize that those are the stakes. Like, that's the intensity. That's the, how fierce it is of a battle we need to kind of wrestle with. The Apostle Paul very famously put it like this in Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty hand. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Here's how J.C. Ryle put it. He said, true Christianity is a fight. There is a vast quantity of religion current in the world, which is not true, genuine Christianity. It passes muster. It satisfies sleepy consciences, but it is not good money. There are thousands of men and women who go to church every Sunday, but you never see any fight about their religion, of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring. They know literally nothing at all. I have a pastor friend, mentor of mine, who said something at one point I thought was, was profound. He said, you know, the devil in his schemes, doesn't have to get Christians most of the time to fall into one of the big temptations. He doesn't have to tempt them to murder or, or commit an affair or, or backstab, betray somebody. He just needs to get them to settle or give in to something just little by little, and then he's got them right where he wants them. Christian friends, if Christianity is a fight, are you fighting for holiness? Are you fighting for your marriage? Are you fighting for, uh, to, to be noble in the workplace? Are you fighting against temptation, not just sitting there? And you know, to me, I know prayer is not mentioned in this text. It almost certainly shows you more perspective on the need and power for prayer. I mean, we just need Jesus. In fact, these are not my notes, just kind of going off road here for a second. But like, there's times where Jesus brought out, the, the cast out the demons, and he sent out disciples to cast out the demons. But every once in a while, there would be one where Jesus said, not, this one has to come out through prayer. And I think there's just an emphasis here where we just, there's battles that can only be won in the spiritual realm. We can do what we can do. God calls us to be faithful and, and have, play our part. But really, we got to be praying. Another implication of this is if you have somebody who's just out to get you, who's just causing life just to be miserable for you, and you just feel like, man, this really stinks, they're not your enemy. There's an enemy behind all of it, but they are not it. And that helps shape the way we respond in love and kindness. And by the way, be praying for them, caring for them, even as we try to have to be wise and prudent. They're not the enemy, but we need to be thoughtful about this. Listen to how C.S. Lewis put this. In mere Christianity, he said, Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes, and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again which bridges us into the final thought. Like Jesus, we're called 
to help set others free in Christ, to help give the life and freedom that is found in, in Jesus, and really Jesus alone. Jesus told the healed man in verse 39, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Listen to how Mark put it in his account. He just adds that, that Jesus said a few more words that Luke didn't give us. But he says, go home uh, and, uh, to your own people and tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So we just read the story. We're considering the story of really a battle of good versus evil. But what shines through most brightly is the display of God's mercy through Jesus. And we just see that all over this text. Uh, for stars with the demoniac, this healed guy, I mean, almost certainly, we're not given the particulars. This guy did something to get himself into this situation. How did that just happen? And yet Jesus not only, you know, healed him, loved him that way, but sent him out. Could you imagine going from a person with thousands of demons in you to being sent out as God's missionary to share how much God has done for you? That's pretty incredible. God's mercy. And then God's mercy was on display for the villagers. How's that? Well, they rejected Jesus, even as Jesus showed up to try to say, here I am. And as they rejected Jesus, they, Jesus didn't go, well, you know what? I'm God, so fall in already. He could have. Nor did he like lecture them on a soapbox and say, you guys are acting like fools. And even as he left the shore, he didn't abandon them still but sent this man to go off and tell the story so they would continue to have opportunity to hear and maybe hopefully receive the mercy of God themselves. But most of all, most of all, this text foreshadows God's great mercy for us in even greater ways than how he healed that man on that shore that day. It for, this man's story foreshadows what Jesus would do for us on the cross. Uh, it's incredible. I mean, you think about it, Earlier on, I mentioned that the disciples certainly would have been wondering, aren't, what, like, why are we here, Jesus? Aren't we in enemy territory? I mean, they would have just understood that through and through. Why are you bringing us to enemy territory? They, had, they saw the Roman garrison there. They thought, you know what? Those are the oppressors. Those are the guys we need to be fighting against. Those are the guys, by the way, that the, the, the people of God at that point figured that, man, if Messiah is coming, he's going to like deal with them. But Jesus didn't bring the sword probably could have, by the way, at this point in Luke 8. He had riled up the crowds. People wanted to follow him, make him king. He probably could have done some damage with the sword, but he didn't come with the sword to deal with the Roman oppressors. He came to deal with another even greater enemy, evil and spiritual darkness. And he didn't come with the sword. He came to lay down and give his life. If you think about it, this man and his condition really foreshadowed what Jesus would do for us on the cross because we're told that this man was naked while on the cross Jesus was naked. Jesus was bound. Jesus would be cut. Jesus would cry out. And instead of living among the tombs, Jesus would ultimately die and be placed in the tomb. And in this way, on the cross, he would defeat evil once and for all, not with a sword, but offering his life as a sacrifice such that we could receive forgiveness of sins, and a restored relationship with God that will last forever, to be unchained. Listen to how 1 Peter 2 puts it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
by going to the cross and dying for the forgiveness of sins, he gave us the only way that we can truly overcome evil. I mean, think of it. We do a lot of things as a society to try to deal with evil. Policy, procedure, politician, they're all trying to deal with a lot of the ills in society. And you know what? They can make some headway. There's some wonderful things that can be done. But the reality is they're insufficient and not by a small margin. Why? Because evil exists in the systems. Evil exists not even just in the systems, but in the people creating the systems or trying to heal the system. It's just always going to be ever-present. But we see here in what Jesus has done for us is how to break the chains. It's through God's mercy what he did for us on the cross. And as Christians, it's to join with him in that work, living out the same way, giving our life for the sake of others. Put this way, Paul summarizes this in Romans 12 when he says, like Jesus, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And if our future is secure because of what Christ did on the cross, it means we can lay down our life to whatever extent that means, to whatever degree that means, knowing that we are ultimately in his hands. And in so doing, join him in the work of bringing about the redemption of all things. But the power we see here, at least given in this story, is in our story of what God has done for you. Jesus said to this healed man, go and share what God has done for you. Go and share his mercy. Do you have any mess in your life, past or present? Let me also ask, do you think it's any messier than this man's life was, this healed demoniac? First, you can bring your mess to God, this story tells us. Uh, He's not thrown by it. He's not looking to lecture you for it. And not only does he have the power to set you free on the cross, he's proven that he has the ability and desire to be with you through whatever may come. But then know also that we see in this story that God doesn't want to use you just in spite of your mess. He actually wants to use you through, maybe even out of your mess. Go and tell how much God has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Are there any messes in your life that God has redeemed? Could you share that with others? Now, what we're not saying here is you need to go find a soapbox and scream it out loud and just put it on full display, but can you find quiet, faithful ways to tell people that God might just bring about in your life through the power of the Spirit that you can tell your story of what God has done for you, the mercy he's done for you in order to bring healing and wholeness, hopefully liberation into the world little by little? Let me give you a very small example almost trivial example that I thought was pretty cool. Recently, I met with a pastor friend, and it just came up in conversation how he struggles with laziness. I thought that was really interesting. On the surface, he seems like a person who, you know, is a hard worker, and he kind of saw that in my reaction, so he said, no, it's, it's a real struggle of mine, and I just, it's just, and I'm sitting there thinking like, man, this, it's so, it was so refreshing to hear a pastor talking about this so openly, and I was just realizing, man, there's a little form of like bringing something to the light, like letting the chains start to fall down a little bit. It was so refreshing to hear because it was just pointing to God's goodness in his life. And he's telling me how God's been working on him. What would it look like, current family, if we began to become increasingly people who our story out in the world was, man, we don't have it all together. I don't have it all together. But I'm following the one who came to break the chains. Following the one who's whose very power it is to set us whole and right. What would that look like as we point people to Jesus in this way? Evil and darkness, 
is a reality, but Jesus came to defeat us, and he, and he wants to use us to join us in that fight. We can accept him and surrender to him and receive it that way. We can understand that true Christianity is a fight, and we need to engage it with his help, and we can join with him and this man who was healed on that day in sharing what God has done for us. Let's pray. Father, this is really a very important, uh, vital topic that we need to really wrestle with. Of course, we don't want to jump to the extreme of just overdoing it, overplaying it, but, but we do want to recognize with, with a sober heart that our, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. And it is, it is scary in, in some senses, and we don't have to just look out into the evils of the world, which are many, to see its scariness. We can just look in our own hearts, and that can be scary. But Father, you can more than deal with that. You can, you can break the chains. In fact, you have on the cross when you defeated evil once for all, and we, when we receive that, put our faith in you. So I pray that anybody here today who has not received you, today would be the day that they would say, even, even now in their hearts, Lord, I want to receive you as Savior, as the one who died for me. I receive the forgiveness of sins, and I believe that you died and rose again so I could be in, have, have life forever with you. And if, Father, for those of us who have put our faith in you, Lord, would you help us recognize that, that this faith you called us to is, is really a fight? Would you help us fight for our marriages? for holiness, against addictions, all, all the rest of it. Would you help us fight, knowing that in the end, through, the, through your power in us, you're going to accomplish a great victory. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.